As the lights come up, why don't you make your way to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14, the final chapter in our study of this book, and it's a good one. This is a guilt-free text. Uh, There's no commands, there's no judgment here, just promise. It's not going to talk about how bad you ought to feel because of your sin. Um, It's not going to talk about that. It's not going to talk about how you got to go back in history to understand it, which we've had to do through Hosea. We've had to go back in Old Testament history to ferret out some truth. No, no threats, just promise, which is good, right? Because the last two weeks, what have we been studying? The path of self-destruction. And it wasn't uh, news to us. We all have lived it. We've all done it. We all do it to a degree even now. We lead ourselves down a path of, of, of destroying that which God is already doing. And I'm glad chapter 14's here um, because it lets me take a deep breath from the final verses of the previous chapter. Look at the last verse of the previous chapter. Samaria will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. I'm glad that's not the end of the story. And I'm glad these next two phrases aren't the end of the story either. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women will be ripped open. Wow. That's a tough ending. Well, today we're going to look at something very encouraging. Your life, as it goes down to depths you never thought you'd go, as as sin takes you farther than you thought it'd take you, and you end up being... um, in a place of wonder as to the evil that has been released in your life, there is just as big of a dynamic in how far God can take you into forgiveness. He can take someone on the end of their rope. They've made a knot and they've held on and then in reality God says, let go and and let me catch you. And he can catch them just as far as they can fall, he can catch them. And so this text is about supernatural restoration. The prophet here paints a beautiful picture for what God would do in the life of a repentant sinner, somebody who acknowledges that they are at the end of their rope, that they are the cause of their problems. When you come to him with confession and repentance, you can see this personal message here. For those of you that feel, and I imagine it's most of us here today, that we've drifted. You feel like you've drifted spiritually. Maybe you've grown dull. You know, you haven't picked up your Bible this year yet. Maybe you've grown dull to prayer. You know, when it came to last week's list of prayers, you never made it to the list. You prayed before a meal, after a meal. You prayed before bed, but that's about it. And so maybe you haven't drifted, you've just grown dull. But regardless, is there a path to return to the Lord? Experience his forgiveness, be restored to a place of blessing. This is the text. This text is God's altar call. It almost reads like you would expect at the end of a Billy Graham crusade or a Hot Hearts conference. I asked my daughter and others what they thought of the youth conference and and, uh, they gave me good feedback on that and I went there Friday night to be a part of it. Got to see one of my favorite singers, Lauren Daigle. I didn't know she was from Lafayette, just down the road. Um, But man, that was a neat, neat concert. But at the end of every speech, there was a time of commitment. Like in the Billy Graham Crusades, how at the end it would be, bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer. It didn't matter the words, it mattered the attitude, the heart, and people came to faith. And that's this text. The pleading of a father in his restorative love for you to come back to him. It's very similar in feel to one of my favorite verses in scripture. 
I've got, a, I've got a list of top 10 or 15 Bible verses, and this hits it. It's Isaiah chapter 57, verse 18. Listen to this. God speaking here, he says, I have seen how they acted, but I will heal them. I will lead them. I will help them. I will comfort those who mourn. I offer peace to all near and far. <laughs> that is a great promise of God. Notice the five parts in this verse of restoration. These are the things God wants to do in your life. If you've been hurt, God says, I want to heal your hurt. If if you've been confused this week, God says, I want to lead you out of that confusion into an obvious path. If you've been in a place where you feel helpless, God says, I want to help you change that where you don't feel so helpless. If you think that no one understands Look what he says, I want to comfort you. If you feel like you're anxious and you're worried and you're afraid, how does it end? I offer peace to all near and far. The fact is that life is tough. We, leave, we live in an imperfect world and we are imperfect people and this is an imperfect church and when it comes down to it, the only perfect thing is God himself. God in that though, with all your imperfections, all your struggles, God knows about your situation. We see this throughout the whole Bible. God knows your habits. He knows your hurts. He knows your hangups. He knows the good. He knows the bad. And some of you have had a really tough week this week. Some of you have had a really tough month. Some of you had a really hard 2016. And God says, Psalm 56, you know the trouble I am. You've kept a record of my tears. Isn't that incredible? The Bible says that God knows you up close and personal and every tear you cry, he counts them. Every struggle, he's kept a record of your tears. You say, well, nobody knows what the hell I'm going through in my marriage. God does. Nobody understands how hard it is to struggle to break this bad habit. God does. Nobody knows the depression, the fear that I feel and that I'm going through. It's a lie. God understands your depression. He sees every tear. He keeps a record of every tear. Psalm 31 says, you've seen, God, the crisis in my soul. God is aware of your needs, and the Bible says he knows what you need, and he will provide it even, as the video said, even when sometimes you don't ask for it. Psalm 69 says, you know how foolish I've been. Sometimes we forget that part. We don't want God to know all the dumb stuff we do. The fact is, there is nothing on in your life, outside of your life, that isn't on record. God has recorded it. And that is a huge, huge deal. So as you step into today's text, this is a, answering the question, how do I return to the Lord? He is up close and personal. But how do you get back when you've lost, when you've stepped away? It sounds and feels like a a message you'd hear at Alcoholics Anonymous. It feels and sounds like something you'd hear at Celebrate Recovery. And the R in the word return stands for the word realize. If you're taking notes, write this down. Realize I'm the problem, not God. Until you do that, you can't return. Realize I'm the problem, not God. Listen to verse one. Return, O Israel, to the Lord, God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord, your God. Come home. Don't simply try harder, return. It's the idea of repentance. Here, Hosea cries out 
to his countrymen, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. And he uses a preposition here, which in Hebrew means more than mere turning to Yahweh. It is a complete conversion. You turn 180 degrees, turning your back on those things and return to him. Now he gives the reason for you stumbled. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Who's the problem? Is God the problem? No. We are the problem. Sin here in this verse is represented as a false step. The reason you have fallen flat, the reason you've experienced pain, the reason you've experienced failure, disappointment, fatigue, the reason you're so tired, the reason you can't sleep, the reason your mind is playing that record over and over again, the reason you can't stop doing what you're doing is because you have stepped away from God. You've wandered from me. See, we we all do this. Matter of fact, the Christian life is a series of roller coaster ride up and down, stepping away from God, stepping to God. Today can be a day when he steps in and he offers to you to take it off your shoulders. There's a really good illustration of this on Fifth Avenue in New York City. In front of the RCA building there is the statue of Atlas, right? And on his shoulders, Atlas is leaning down and the weight of the world is on his shoulders, Some of you are like that. You are carrying the weight and you're trying to play God in your life, in your marriage, your relationships, your job, and you think you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and you can't. You can't carry the weight of your children. You can't carry the weight of your job, your health. None of that is in your control. God is in control. And as an illustration of that, across the street from the RCA building is a church, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And behind the altar is a little statue of Jesus. And he's got his hand out, and the globe is in his hands. And it's, he's not straining. Atlas is straining. You strain, but your problems, when you give them to the Lord, your headaches, when you give them to the Lord, your bad habit, when you give it to the Lord, he, he sees it as something not that big of a deal to hold on to. When you carry the weight and you try to play God, you are actually the problem. So that's where you start. You realize that I'm the problem, not God. This is step one. In Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous is step one in Celebrate Recovery where you realize that I am the problem, that my life has become powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life has become unmanageable. And if you are living in light of that, you're in a good place here today. If you can start there, God can do a big work. Some of you think your life's fine. Nothing's wrong, everything's good. And because of that, uh, because of that denial, you're not gonna get what God wants you to have today. So you gotta step out of denial. Step out of that river, as we say. Do you ever stay up late when you know you ought to go to bed? Do you ever drink more or eat more calories than your body needs? Do you ever feel like you ought to exercise, but you don't do it? Do you ever know you ought to do the right thing, but you do the wrong thing? Or you know you shouldn't do the wrong thing, but you end up doing it anyway? Do you ever feel like you should be unselfish here, but you can't, take that step and you just act selfishly? Have you ever tried to control somebody or something and found it was uncontrollable and it left you with a sleepless night? If you said yes to any of those questions, welcome to the human race. We're all in need of repentance from time to time when we begin to play God. Playing God and trying to control your problems and control your stuff and control people, you can't keep those plates spinning. See, you playing God is the guaranteed job you're going to fail at. You're going to guaranteed you're failing at it. 
You will have fatigue, you will have failure, and you will have frustration if you try to play God. And we all experience it. C.S. Lewis said, a Christian is not one who never does wrong, but one who is enabled to repent and begin again. Each stumble, begin again. Under the inner working of Christ inside of us, a Christian can begin again. There's, there's a lot of honesty that has to happen at the front of this passage. You've got to admit that you're the problem. Funny story goes with this. In the days of outhouses, a young boy at his house, they had an outhouse. And in cold winter days like this, it was cold, it was, it was windy, it, didn't, it wasn't exactly airtight, so you go out there to the outhouse to use the restroom. It was He hated, this young boy hated this outhouse. And he swore he was going to push it into the river. The river was right next to it. He's going to push it in the river one day. Well, one particular day, it rained a lot, and the river swelled. And sure enough, he went out there, and with great gusto, he pushed that outhouse in the, in the river. Later that day, the father met him at the front porch. He said, son, you need to walk with me to the woodshed. Of course, he knew what that meant. He's going to get a whooping. And they walked over there, and the father looked at him and said, um, because of what you did, because of your, your struggle, you're going to get a spanking right here because you pushed the outhouse into the river. Did you do it? He gave him a chance to own up to it. He said, Daddy, Daddy, I did it. I did it. But George Washington cut down the apple tree, and he confessed to it, and he, his daddy let him get off the hook. He said, yeah. But George Washington's father wasn't in the outhouse when you pushed it in the river. <laughs> you know, owning up to something, trying to get off versus owning up to all of it. Owning up to all of it is what we're talking about. We're not talking about halfway repentance. This first verse is about full-fledged repentance. Now, here is what God says you're to do if you're ready to return to the Lord. So this is a recipe for repentance. Look at this. Express here, write this in your notes. Express your repentance with words. Verse two, take words with you and return to the Lord. You don't need a sacrifice. You don't need to change your diet code or, or, or give this or sacrifice this. I want you to come empty-handed but with a mouth full of words. And I want you to come clean with all of it. Matter of fact, he says, I'm not even gonna leave it up to you. I'm gonna give you the words to say. Look at this. Say to him, Say to him these exact words. Take away all iniquity. You start there. You come clean of all of it. Come clean. Say it all. Ask for forgiveness for all of it. Have a time of a fearless moral inventory of all the junk and the stink in your life and lay it out before him because he wants to clean it all. And if you come halfway, you're leaving a rot. You're leaving something that can fester later. You come clean of all of it. I want you to admit that you've sinned and that's, that's where repentance begins. I don't want you to appeal to me based on how good you've been. I want you to admit that you are in trouble because of you. Look at the next thing. Secondly, I want you to say this. Receive us graciously. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. I want you to come clean and I want you to come humbly. You need my grace. You can't earn it. Grace is what you get when you can't uh, you, there's no way you deserve it. Grace is what you receive when, when God has to stoop and give you something what you don't deserve. He says, I want you to say, receive us back into fellowship. I want you to want grace and want me, God says. How does the song go? Nothing in my hands I bring. 
Simply to thy cross I cling. I want you to cling to my cross and I want you to own that forgiveness. Look at the next thing I want you to say. That we may present the fruit of our lips. So I want you to come clean. I want you to come contritely and I want you to come crying out. I want this, I don't need sacrifice. I need a fruit of your lips. I need you to say it aloud. The sacrifice you will be presenting will be the fruit of your lips. The lips that say, forgive me, and say, receive me graciously, they will, at this point, once I do, they will say, thank you, God. Thank you for receiving me. Hosea spelled out the method. He spelled out the words. The sacrifice God most desires of you every Sunday, every day, is the acknowledgement of sin. Right? It goes like this. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned in your sight. Surely you will make me one of your hired hands and he set out on the road and when his father saw him from a distance he ran to him and he threw his cloak around him and he put his ring on his finger and he said take the fatted calf we've been saving for a special occasion this is the day put sandals on his feet for my son was once lost but now he is found that's what we're talking about here There's a great story of this kind of of rare public apology, the kind of repentance that a Christian should be very comfortable with. If you're already thinking, I can't do that, I can't can't say it out loud, I can't can't ask God to cleanse me, I'm not that bad off, I'm really, you know, and you're already starting to make excuses, that's a bad sign. But for the believer, this kind of humility has been marked in history as somewhat of a rare thing. There was a Prussian king by the name of Alec, Uh, Frederick the Great. He was touring a Berlin prison and he had the power to let these prisoners out of prison and so they knew that. When he walked in, all the prisoners got on their hands and knees before him and said, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And there was one, just one, one in the whole prison that was silent. And the Prussian king walked over to him. He said, son, what are you in here for? He said, armed robbery, your majesty. And he said, did you do it? And he said, oh yeah, I did it. I deserve to be here. And according to history, Frederick summoned the jailer and ordered him, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in a prison where he will corrupt all these fine, innocent people who occupy it. No, a church, a church is a local chapter of Sinners Anonymous where we could spend the rest of the time and in great humility you could talk about where you've been but where God's taken you. God feels towards your confession of sin, towards, towards that honest owning up, when you can stomach that, God is responsive. Look at this. He says, I want you to say something else, verse three. I want you to say something else. I, I'm, as you say, I'm sorry, he says, I want you to go further. Like the wife who says, I'm sorry is not good enough. Like the mom who says, I'm sorry is not good enough. I want you to say more than just public apology. I want you to say, verse three, Assyria will not save us. In other words, you will no longer turn to political alliances to solve national problems. The mightiest things on earth will not save you. I want you to say that. I want you to say there's no kingdom on the planet, no tool, no dollar bill, no self-help book, no counselor on the planet that can save you. Only I can. I want you to come owning up to that truth. I want to hear you say it. Verse three, I also want to hear you say, we will not ride on horses. 
Now, those of you that love horses, that's a weird thing for you to say. But which nation at the time was known for their horses? Right, I'll give you a little hint. They had a leader called the Pharaoh, and these things called pyramids. It's the Egyptians. See, the first part of verse 3 says, I don't want you going to get help, and I want you to admit that you cannot get help from the mighty powers above in the north or the mighty powers below in the south. Don't go north, don't go south. I want you to come admitting that the world cannot save you. I also want you to admit something else. Look at the verse three, third part. Nor will we say again, I want you to say that, we, we will not say again our God to the work of our hands. I want you to admit that the world's ideas, your ideas about God, they're wrong. You are not the arbiter of right and wrong and you cannot come to conclusions through mere intellect as to who God is. You need a prophet of Israel. I want you to denounce idolatry. I want you to denounce your thoughts about God. And I want you to place them squarely in scripture. And here's the last thing. I want you to say, for in you, the orphan finds mercy. What is that? You are a personal God. I want you to acknowledge that I'm a personal God. And I want you to acknowledge that I am a merciful father. I'm good. You are the God of the little fellow. I want you to admit that. Is there a God who is so great that he can be the God of the entire universe and the God of a little boy or a little girl whose parents are not around, who've abandoned him, rejected him, in life or in death they abandoned? Is God that big that he's the God of the little fellow and the great king? Absolutely. That's what I want you to say, God says. So let me break this down. This is a turning away. These, this verse here, verse three, is a turning away. It's, it's, it's that marking of your spiritual life with a never again comment. I, I could list out the last 26 years of my spiritual journey and I've got about five or six of them. Never again, never again. I'm turning away. When you turn to Christ, you are turning your back on those things because those are the things that God rescued you from. The world did not, could not save you. HBO could not save you. Wall Street could not save you. That bar down the street could not save you. The, your ideologies, your theologies that you came up with on your own, they, are, they have failed you and you've got to reject them. Turning to God requires a turning away from the powers of this world and its gods. See, this is, this is again what mom says. Sorry isn't enough. You've got to turn away from those things. It's the Sunday school teacher who's asking the kids, what is repentance? And one kid says, well, it's feeling sorry for what you do. And the little girl pipes up, says, no, it's feeling so sorry you quit doing what you're doing. Right? Change is not change until you've changed. Say that out loud with me. It's brilliant. Change is not change until you've changed. So when you restore yourself, when God restores you from how far you've come from him, he wants to restore you completely. Love that. Turn away, this really is the toughest step. This is what the New Testament calls a stumbling block. This whole thing, turning to and turning away, this is called a stumbling block. And then for this very thing, many people turn away from God. You have to admit that your rationale, your reasoning is not smart enough. 
You have to admit that your behavior is not good enough. I am a sinner. And most men's hearts are too prideful. Most women's hearts are too prideful to admit that. And this becomes a stumbling block. You have to abandon all attempts at earning God's favor. Because you don't have to. But you can't get to that I don't have to point until you recognize that your attempts to fix your problem intellectually, philosophically, economically, spiritually, physically, ethically, they are absolutely abysmally failures. And you are intellectually, philosophically, ethically, morally bankrupt. That's where the Christian begins. And by the way, if you've been a believer for a long time, that's where the Christian day begins. That's the gospel applied to your every day, where you admit every day outside of what God gives, I am bankrupt. Can you say that? Can you be that up, up front and honest here today, that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior? Christian and non-Christian alike ought to be able to say that. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Have you heard the story of Naaman? Oh, I love the story. It's found in 2 Kings. Naaman is a Syrian general. And he has led the armies of Syria to conquer the wicked northern ten kings or the ten tribes of Israel. And he did it. And after that great glory, he comes down with leprosy. That got a hold of him. And in his leprosy, a little Jewish girl slave girl who they had captured when they captured when they conquered Israel they had captured a little Jewish slave girl and she told him noticing his leprosy he's trying to hide it in his clothes he's putting on all sorts of masks and she notices the leprosy and she says to him there is a prophet in Israel who is able to heal you before that he would never have listened to a slave girl from a captured kingdom he would have never listened to her but he's listening now because leprosy hit him In the process, he goes to his king, and his king writes a note to the king of Israel. And they basically say, order that prophet, his name was Elisha, order that prophet to heal my general. So there's muscle. He said, I'm going to muscle this. And he goes beyond that. He travels to Israel, and he doesn't just take his muscle, he takes his, his wealth. He comes with gold and silver and animals and his finest clothes, and they they arrive at the house of Elisha. You remember the story? And I could just see Elisha looking out the window, go, oh, this guy's got some problems. He thinks he can buy deliverance, healing from, from his leprosy. And so what does Elisha do? He didn't even come out of the house, right? He sends his servant. Now, this, this man is used to power, right? Uh, Naaman is used to people doing what he, he's a general. And this is a conquered kingdom. He's conquered these people. And he comes with all his fineries ready to buy it. And here, Elisha sends out his servant. And, of course, um, this makes Naaman really mad. He basically, at that point, says, you know, I came here so that you would fix my problem and you won't even send me out. You know, I thought a prophet would come out and he'd wave his wand and go hocus pocus and boom, my leprosy would go. I'm, I'm out. I'm out. And he turns around and starts to walk off. See, Gehazi had the right words at that point. He got his attention before he walked off and he said, wait, wait, wait. If you want healing, you can't come ordering me to do this and demanding it. That isn't the right posture, nor can you come trying to pay for it. No, here's what Elisha has told me to tell you. His name was Gehazi. The servant says, you need to go down to the Jordan River. 
and you need to take off all your clothes and you need to get in that river seven times in a row. Jump in once, jump in twice, jump in three times, jump in four times. You've got to take off your clothes and on that seventh time you jump in the river, it will heal you. Naaman's still not ready to repent. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't the rivers of Syria so much better than an old muddy crag of a river? Have you ever been to the Jordan River? If you've traveled to the Jordan, it is, it is a muddy little, little thing. If you go with us in October, we'll, if you want to be baptized in the Jordan River, we'll baptize you there in October when we go. And in that process, you'll see it's not the prettiest of things. Right? He says, basically, I've been to the Tigris. I've been to the Euphrates. Can't we go to one of those rivers? He says, no, I'm out. And once more, Gehazi challenges him. He said, you're stumbling over the simplicity of it. Okay, if I'd have said, go climb Mount Everest, you, you would have done that. If I'd have said, here's the check, write the check, you would have written it. But I say, just go and wash yourself and you will be cleansed. And you won't do it because it's what? Too humbling? And it would have been humbling. Right? It would have been humbling. But in that process, Naaman says, okay, I'm ready. And they go down to the Jordan River, and he takes off his clothes. And I hope you never have seen a leprous man naked, but it's quite the sight. And in the process, he comes to the very execution device in front of him. That's what God is doing. He is showing him that he needs to be drowned to all that he thinks, all that he is, all that he, th- he imagines he brings to the table. And in the humility of it, it rises. It rises in humility every time he goes in. He, as I like to say, he's skinny dip. My kids say, say it's more like a chunky dunk. But anyway, he jumps in the river and he gets out. And that's embarrassing. He's not cleansed. He goes in again and then he gets out. And, he, and it's, the humility is rising. He is going over and over again like an exclamation point. You need to die to you. It would be as if there was a group of people who would see the execution device of the Romans, a cross, as something beautiful. And they'd wear it close to their heart, around their neck. And they would acknowledge that the only way to come into this kind of restorative power is to completely repent of their attempts at earning their own salvation. And in the bowing of a stiff neck, finally bowing of a stiff neck to the cross of Jesus, the yoke of his grace is placed on them. And it is a light yoke. That's what he was told to do, and Naaman did it. And Naaman comes out of the water, and he says, hey, all this silver gold, can I give it all to you? Not not as a payment, but as a thank you. I just want to give it all. And remember what Elisha said? Elisha and Gehazi both said, no, 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 no. No, we we aren't going to take a dime from you, lest anybody think you paid for this. And Naaman says, well, okay, give me this. Can I have two donkey-full loads of dirt from the Jordan River. Because that which I thought was dirty and nasty has become glorious. And I want to take it back. And incidentally, we never hear of Naaman again. Did he get fired? Did he get killed? Did he get thrown into prison? We don't know. But he came as a general full of self-pride and he was broken down to the level of a believer. And it's at that cross, you know, I'm sure I'm sure in his mind You know, to go to the Jordan River is the place that the prostitute goes. It's the place that the drug pusher goes. It's the place that the pimp goes. It's the place of the lowest of low. And Naaman's saying, I can't do that until he gets to this idea that this is the only way. 
And the thing that is your greatest stumbling block and my greatest stumbling block is our pride. Right? And God says to you, come to the cross. That's it. Just come to the cross. Beautiful. Here's the fourth verse. Understand some results. Some of you are ready. You're ready to return to God. You've been too far away from him. Let me tell you what you get behind door number one when you choose door number one. Verse four, I will heal their apostasy. That is a short-term result, but it's yours. This is the truth of all scripture, that God in his healing heals your backsliding and it heals the, the consequences of that. It's a picture of healing from the wounds that have been inflicted because of your slide down heel. I will fix the mess that you've made of your life. Isaiah says, by his stripes, we are what? Healed. He will remove the effects of your sin. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you, come on, free. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that I have set you free. He wants to set you free. I will heal their apostasy. You are no longer the demoniac. Remember the demoniac? Hurting himself, cutting himself, living among dead people, work, walking through life in self-destructive tendencies, chapter 13. You are no longer chapter 13. Jesus says in a word, I can deliver you from your self-destruction. And I can take all that you have done and I can place it somewhere else. I will, look at this, I will love them freely. I will reestablish fellowship. I will get rid of your past and I will start you off on a new present and a new future. Prodigal son, when you seek me, I will give you new clothes, a new robe, new sandals, a new ring. I will slaughter the new calf. That's what I will do. And you and the father will be married together. That's what I'll do. Now the next part here, God explains that Israel's repentance would actually change something in him as well. Look at this. For my anger has turned away from them. The ominous threat in chapter 8 verse 5 that he says, I will burn them up in my anger, it is reversed right there. See, repentance averts God's anger. And all through scripture, anybody who repented, who turned to Christ and turned away from their false gods and their false ideas of God and their, and their lukewarmness and their backsliding. Everybody that returned, he received. I paid, a, I paid a lot of money at seminary to learn that. All through the Bible, it's clear. If you come to him and return to him, he will not turn you away. You come to him today, he doesn't look at you, God, I've hated you for a long time, go. Right? Now question, God will never turn you away. Can a church turn you away? Oh Yeah. You know, in Scripture, we see the crowds getting in the way. When the four friends have to lower their friend through the roof, it was because of the crowds that they couldn't get to. Zacchaeus couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds. The woman with an issue of blood couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds. On and on. Verse 5, I'm not that way. God says, I will be like the dew to Israel. This is a simile in previous chapters for that which is transitory. Here, he's saying, I'm going to protect you. What did the dew? What does the dew do? The dew in the morning provides protection from the scorching sun and the scorching winds. It provides water when there's a drought. There's some water that comes out of the air and gets the plants by. I will be like that. I will be your life. There's going to 
You will begin growing. And there, you were going downhill, you'll start going uphill in growth because of this grace. Look at this. He will blossom like the lily. Because of this grace, God says, I will blossom you like the lily. I will make you beautiful. You think you're the weakest, ugliest person in your family? God says, I'm going to flip that. Right? I'm going I'm to turn you around, and he, you will be like the root of the cedars of Lebanon. I will make you pretty, and I will make you strong. That's what the Lebanon cedars mean. Beauty and abundance, stability, fresh, new, beginning, pretty, strong. People are going to name their kids after you. Right? That's how, I'm, how pretty I'm going to make you. I will turn your life around and make it something that is useful. Something that I can use to show people what it's like to come to me. Repentance would have these immediate pleasant results. Now, there are some long-term results as well. Look at this. Remain hopeful of these. His shoots will sprout. Remain hopeful that you're going to start out small, but you're going to grow fruitful. They would be a garden. Look at this. And his beauty will be like the olive tree. What's that promise? Olives were used for medicine, life, food. He says, I, you're gonna be useful for life. You're gonna be useful for food. You're gonna be useful to help other. Israel would be attractive to other people. The beauty of the eye of what they would see would only be matched by the smell. Look at this. And his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. You will be the aroma of Christ. Verse seven, those who live in his shadow will again raise grain protection to others, bountiful. What did Jesus say? I've come that you might have life and you might have it what? I'm gonna give you abundant life. This half living that you're doing, it will be full living. And they will blossom like the vine. Here it is again. I think the thing he's adding to here is vine through Old Testament and New is a symbol of of joy. He says, "I, I will be, I will give you joy and happiness like you never thought possible. Sounds like John 15, I'm the vine, my father is the gardener, you are the branches, he remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And at the end of that passage he says, I've done all this so that your joy may be made complete. He wants to give you joy. That's the language here. Mm. I'm the vine and you're going to grow and you're gonna find joy and there's gonna be opportunities. You haven't laughed in so long. You're gonna laugh out loud at what God's doing in your life. You're gonna raise hands You think about those other people in this worship service. How can they close their eyes and I see tears and they're raising? That's gonna be you because I'm gonna be your joy and nothing's gonna hold you back. I love that. Those short range, long range, the last two verses kind of put a capstone on the whole book. And I want you to note the purity and the wisdom that is required of repentant people. He doesn't want you to go back into the mud. He wants you to stay clean of the mud. If he delivers you out of a bar, don't ever go back to that bar. If he delivers you out of gossip, don't say one critical thing about another person for the rest of your life. Be pure in that. Why? Because it's wise. It's wisdom. Listen to this. Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Not, notice it's not what have I to do, it's what more. You, you've wasted your life on empty things. I don't want you giving your life to empty things anymore. It is I who answer and look after you. I want that to be your purity. I love that verse. Come home. It is I who am speaking. He's a God who speaks and a God who cares. He promises people that he would care for them. 
It is I speaking. I am a luxuriant cypress. What is that? A leafy cypress. In other words, he provides shelter. I'm going to provide shelter. I'm going to cover you. Don't worry about that other stuff in your life. I am going to be your shelter. Stay pure with me. Stay connected. Verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. See, if you think you're wise by ignoring what we're talking about today, or you've grown so cold that it's just boring to hear these words, you are foolish. He who hears these words and says, amen, amen, this is wisdom, then you're really hearing them. For the days of the Lord are right. What does that say? Contrary, contrast to your other life of crookedness, these ways revealed in the word of God, these ways of the Lord, they're perfect. And the righteous will walk in them. The righteous will walk in those straight paths. They will live according to the clear precepts of God's word. But transgressors will stumble in them. Stumbling block. They'll come up to this place where God says, you must die in order to come to me. You must die to self, must die to your ideas, must die to the things you're living for, die to your dreams, die to your goals, die to your idols, die to your your heroes, and you must take me as your hero. Take me as your focus. Take me as your lover and have purity there. And it is smart that you would do that. The moral of this entire book is summed up in that concluding verse. Wise and understanding readers will discern it. Yet because some are willing, willfully obtuse, Hosea says it in straightforward language to the point where you can't ignore it. <clears throat> Look at that. Realize I'm not the problem. Realize I am the problem, not God. Express your repentance with words. Turn away with a never again attitude. Understand the short term results of repentance. Remain hopeful. Remain hopeful for long term restoration and note well the purity and wisdom required. So here's my question to you Does this sound too good to be true? I had a number of people ask me the last couple of weeks All right, use Pinocchio. Use the Wizard of Oz. What's the children's story for this week? This is most of the grim fairy tales. Where there is a young lady, she's beautiful, but she bites of the evil apple of the world and she is dead in the forest. Life has brought her to that place. She started out good, but she ended up dead. And the only hope of that Snow White, that sleeping beauty, is for who to come? Prince, charming. Ladies, that's a guy who takes a shower, right? He smells really good. All right, Prince Charming comes, and only one thing, true love. True love's kiss. When it comes to the Christian, we are ones who know that that kiss, not kissing the calves of the previous chapters, that phrase, but kissing the feet of Jesus, kissing the hands of Jesus, being his lover, that's what wakes you up, his kiss. Some of you need that desperately. So I'm gonna ask you to do something with me. Will you stand? This is not the ending of this service. The ending of this service is for you in humility to have a chance to cry out to the Lord. You're making a mess or life's making a mess of you. Man, it is beating you up. Your fault, someone else's fault, everybody's fault. The truth is, life has become unmanageable. And you've tried everything. You've looked at everything. You hear this message, and it says, come with words. 
So I'm going to ask you, we're going to play a song. I'm going to ask you to cry out to the Lord. If you can't do it in a group like this of other believers, you can't do it out there. Jesus says, he is unashamed of me. I will be unashamed of. Has he ever turned anybody away in their repentance? Not a one. Why wait? If you put it off for another day, you'll have another day to repent of and one day less to repent. So turn, return to your relationship with God. Some of you haven't been close to God since college. And you're not close to him today. You didn't bring a Bible, you're not interested, it's kind of dull, you're just waiting to get on to the next place. And even now you're feeling a little weirded out that we're making such a big deal about it. But this is Christianity, right? That you come to the execution of your life, the cross, and you say, I'm, I'm willing to lay it all down and take upon me the yoke of God's grace. And how do you do that? You come with words. You come clean, all right? So as he plays, can you, can you pray? Just where you're at, just pray. And, and let the words be heard, heard. All right, I'm gonna give you a few minutes to say some words. People around you might hear you. Ooh, right? If you wanna say them loud, say them loud. It's not about my life. I'm right with God. And I know how to get right with him tomorrow if I get sideways. I'm gonna cry out to him. I'm gonna raise my hands as he is the only fount I know to get right with God. All right, so spend some time. Just take a few minutes. Speak out loud. If you have trouble with the words, say this. Say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I don't think right about the world. And I reject the mightiest of this planet, the mightiest of these nations. I reject the mightiest of these places of help. And I grab onto you as the only one who can save my soul. I confess how far I've fallen. I'm the problem, not you. But you are the Savior. Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the one who rescues. You're the one who wants me. Nothing in this world wants me like you do. But yet I've gone to them ahead of you. No more, never again. I'm yours. I want the Cinderella story. Kiss me with your resurrection. Kiss me with your rescue. Kiss me with your deliverance. Come upon me in the the true love that only my soul can, can have in you. That's it, your love. And I pray that it would set me free for you, for you. It's a fairy tale in so many ways, but it's true. It's true. It's amazing grace. In Jesus' name I pray. You know, as God moves in your life, that path that you just walked, where you lost the opportunity just then, it's not the last opportunity. This is not your only life-changing encounter with him that you can have. You can have one tomorrow and Tuesday. As you spend time with him, be his lover. Don't love the things of this world. Love him and him alone. And when you get a little sideways from him, come back with words. Come clean, come contritely, come singing. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you. Hey, Mr. Nate, can you say a prayer for us as we close?